Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Arseaholics podcast. We're doing something incredibly different today, but I am so excited for it. Uh, so you've actually only got me as an arseaholics, as an arseaholics, as an arseaholic. I'm the only arseaholic on this show today. Um, for the first time ever, we've got an external guest. That sounds way too formal. I didn't mean for it to sound that way. But we've got um, we've got we've got our first guest, and it means it means a lot to me about who this guest is. He's my best friend. I've I've that's not the only reason why he's here. It's not it's not like kind of you know makes privileges. He uh, is my mate Kish. He's here, and he's a massive Palace fan. Um, and obviously, given we just played Palace, thought it would be a great idea to get Kish on and, and get his views. Um, so listen before before me talking any more about Kish and about um, about our history. Let me uh, let's hear it from the man himself. So, Kish, thanks so much for being on. How's it going? Great, thank you for having me. Um, and obviously, it's great that you're my best friend, and that means I can get on as the first guest and be the uh, you know use a bit of nepotism to get where I'm going. But yeah, no, all good. And obviously, uh, feeling uh, feeling pretty happy after the game on Monday as well. But yeah, no, really happy to be here and a genuine privilege and honor to be the first guest of the Arsenal So I'm a big fan. Um, like I said, big fan of all what you've done and what you're doing and bringing that. Um, that happiness back to the Emirates, perhaps, is, is the feeling I think I get from listening to the podcast. So, yeah, no, super happy to be here. Yeah, obviously, it's been a pr- quite a fun season to do the podcast, given actually things are, have been going better. They they didn't go better on, on Monday night, and and we'll get into that properly. But, Kish, I don't want to, you know, it's it, it sounds really silly, but it it's it's really nice when, you know, you, 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 you meet fans, when you interact with fans who support the club that is... Uh, local to the area that they were born and raised in. And Crystal Palace is that for you, isn't it, mate? Do you want to just give everyone a, a bit of history as to why you're a Palace fan and, and how long you've been a fan and, and what that journey's been like? Yeah, I mean, the journey itself could probably take two or three weeks to explain, but the actual feeling from uh, from from the love for Palace stems from just, like I said, when we were when we were younger and Palace probably not being um, the most fashionable team, but always being very accessible was was great and so I'd probably start supporting them when I was sort of uh, you know early teens maybe sort of 13 14 and then um, was very fortunate or unfortunate depending on how you look at it. I worked at the club so I was a program seller for a bit at the club but what they did which was great is that they'd give you and bearing in mind we were in the championship back then I think under Trevor Francis and Steve Bruce some terrible times uh, but they'd give you a free ticket to go in after so you basically do your shift you get paid and then you get a ticket to go and watch the game and you know back then we were only getting maybe 13 14,000 people so you know as a young guy with all my friends at school we'd all we'd all do the same thing and then we'd all go and watch the game and the quality wasn't great but what it was was free football on a Saturday stay out of trouble you know watch at that at that time what seemed a really high level until you realize you know you know at that time I think you I think to I think you might have just gone invincible perhaps or something like that and you know maybe Henri had scored a hat trick in his last game it was all in that era of of us just um you know being thinking we were much better than we were but it was as a young South Londoner being from you know from growing up in Croydon living in Crystal Palace my whole life um it's it's just it was just a good thing to do and also they had a really set a real sense of community I think um it, it which we've rec- we've rediscovered a little bit more in the last five years, but it's well versed that in the last ten years we've had a lot of issues of administration and a lot of other things along those lines of almost getting out of business. And for me, it was just it was a safe haven. It was a good place, and it was a good place to just. Um, it's the first time I've ever felt where you could just be. You know, everyone got along, depending on age, color, physique, 
you know, gender. Everyone just was there for one good reason. Yeah, it was, uh, and it's and it's it's been a hell of a journey. It's been probably more lows than highs, but recently it started to feel a lot, lot better. And is it, so you know, you talked a bit about the demographics, which I find really interesting um, because if you, if you talk to a lot of Premier League football fans of the, you know, let's just call them traditionally bigger clubs, they've seen a you know big shift over the last kind of ten odd years um, in terms of fan base. Like, like it's a lot more of a diverse fan base these days, etc. Um, what, what have you seen from your time at Palace? Has it changed? Because you know, I remember going with you when you're in the championship and, you know, and, 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 and now things are very different. You're, you're in a massively established Premier League side. Um, have you seen change in that way in terms of the fan base? Yeah, yes and no, I guess. So I think you've come to some really funny games. You see some great games with me. And I think, I think what's more telling is that I've always been very able to get away tickets to, to games uh, in quite big numbers. And I think uh, as we've got bigger, we've, um, we've got more popular and the, the diversity around Crystal Palace in the area and the, the general gentrification of South London has seen a rising tide of more smarter, more accessible football fans. Probably not um, in comparison to where you have, you know, the, your multinationals across the world where, um, you know, Liverpool's and Man City, you know, all your big, big clubs have got that sort of huge, you know, almost keyboard warrior fandom. But for us, it's starting to take off a little bit now and I'm starting to see it. Maybe the last 18 months, especially, with the, new, the influx of money um, into the club and the, the the change of direction for the ownership that we as a as a club are starting to probably, probably eke our way towards that. Well, we're not going to be the biggest club in London, but we are going to maybe perhaps be the more um almost most the hipsters choice which is a very interesting way to start looking at palace now because um you know for a lot of arsenal fans which is great for us you know we're big big support from you guys because of the connection from Vieira. but even before that you know we've got we've got a storied um interconnectivity we probably have it a bit more with chelsea with their players but historically i was growing up you know we had you know tommy blacks and julian grays and people like that who'd come from arsenal who didn't quite cut it but always were at palace and then we had that you know that link and when they did well i know there was a vested interest so you know um and kenny sansom's ian Wright afterwards you know yeah so so, yeah so i mean they they're probably fractionally a bit before and i don't i don't ever hear about it but you know and then eddie mcgoldrick and you know he he was a he's a a cult hero amongst palace fans as well along those lines but there's always been even when we went on the game on monday there's always been a, a general sort of not apathy, but very much like, a, well, you know, Arsenal are a nice bunch. We're a nice bunch. We're all just pretty nice with each other. That's good. And But from 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 your initial point about the demographic and the change and the shift, it's, I think when I was growing up, I was probably, it's very visible. I was probably one of the uh, only or, you know, minority of brown or South Asian type fan. Um, but I, well, I was very ignorant back then because I didn't know that you could, you had to be a certain way, whatever. So I saw, you know, I was always quite leery anyway as a, as a teenager and especially on the, on the terraces when everyone around me had the same, we all saw the same thing. And that, that, that was a weird reckoning almost because you're actually, you know, there's this guy you've got nothing in common with really on a day-to-day basis or understanding and you're there just swearing together, screaming together, singing <laughs> together 30 years apart, you know, pro- probably doesn't know, met, met anyone like me before. And then I was like, well, this is great. We're all going to get along. And, I've been fairly fortunate as a Palace fan. I've watched that get better and better. And I think um, it's probably highlighted in the fact that we, I think we might be the only team with a, a, a black manager in the Premier League. I'll probably have to double check, but I think we might be. But but that says mountains for what we are as a club and, and the area and in general, the vision. Because I think, as you were saying, South London has always been considered a hotbed of talent. And you think of the players we've missed out on because we weren't, you know, 
ready almost you know we didn't have the category one academy we didn't have all these things but all of a sudden we're now looking like a team that okay look we're not going to go and challenge for the top four anytime soon but we're definitely going to be a Premier League team for as long as we can be a Premier League team for which is a great feeling because growing up as you very well know it was I think you've seen maybe two or three relegations with me you know it's it's been it's and the last time we were there for eight or nine years and I'm, I'm fortunate for Arsenal fans. I don't think there's anyone who listens to this who's probably seen you in any other league than the Premier League. And God, the Championship is oh, it's so 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 painful. So you know, I, you know, it's the best league when you're in it, and it's the worst league when you're you know thinking, oh, that could be us. You know, I've been some terrible away days, uh, but yeah, since in the 20 years, this is. I mean, I go as far to say this is probably the most exciting time to be a Palace fan, other than maybe when we went up with Balassi and Murray and, and Zaha and that trio in 2013-14 under Holloway but the excitement factor about Palace and and hopefully you felt it as well when you were there on Monday uh, the atmosphere and the feeling you know at the club and that's like that for every day not not Arsenal so it's a good it's a good time to be a Palace fan yeah and I do I want to talk to you a lot more about that you know there's lots of things that I think a lot of Arsenal fans would love to understand the Palace perspective from, um, particularly given the Vieira connection, given what a huge player he was for us. Uh, you know, I, I personally don't feel that he's getting enough attention in the media as to, you know, what he's doing at Palace. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts a bit later on that. If we talk a little bit about Monday um, coming into it, obviously, as you know, on this pod, our usual format is, we we generally cry or, or or have a you know great reflection on on the game and you know our experience of it. I was fortunate enough to be at the game. Aaron and was also with me. You were as well, obviously in a different end, um, you know, in the in the home end. But from a Palace point of view, mate, coming into the game, coming coming into the Arsenal game, you know, Arsenal have come into that game winning five away games on the bounce. Uh, Palace themselves are in a pretty good place. You know, you've got the semi final of the FA Cup coming up and. Um, etc. But all, all in all, all things considered, from a Palace perspective, prior prior to the game, what what was your prediction for the game? How, how did you think that it was going to play out? Well, it's, it's a great question. I guess the, fe- the feeling I had was that outside of Man City and Liverpool, we're arguably the two form teams, you know, in the league. You know, we, we're doing pretty well, especially you guys away from home. Um, and like, you were grinding out results and it was an impressive grind. Um, but I, I had a feeling from my point, I thought we, I thought we'd play well, and I thought we'd get a draw, and I thought if we were going to get a draw, it'd be for our own ineptitude, a bit like the home game where we actually probably, on the face of it, didn't we play, we deserved the win, but we didn't because the draw was a fair result in hindsight. But what had happened was, I thought if we were going to win, or sorry, if we were going to draw, that we would basically be two one up again and concede late on, and I, that was my feeling. I thought I would have been happy with the point because I think it would carried on. Um, the momentum on our side, it would have been, you know, uh, a good result for you, all things considered. Um, and I think that would have been, and I think that would have been an indicator of of what I was expecting. And it's it's a strange one because what happened, and, and I know you'll touch on it yourself in a minute, but you, Arsenal, that is, they you started how we have historically started against you, which is very cold. So mm-hmm. I think we've histor- very generally been quite overawed by you as a team. And um, I can only think of a handful of occasions where we've actually gone ahead as opposed to chased, you know, come back. Yeah. I think there's a couple, even this season, we had to come back from it. And then the season before, I think um, when we Wolf got a penalty, that was coming back from one. Um, and so it's always been us like actually waiting for you to score before we actually decide we were right, fine, was either to lose. Whereas um, there seemed to be a real 
feeling. And it's a combination. I know Aaron and touched on it when we were coming back, but there is something special about us on a Monday under the lights with the atmosphere when everyone's, you know, there. And, it, and that plays a big difference. The fans seldomly get the credit they deserve as in, you know, I'm talking in general across football for what, what they can bring to a team. And I think I saw it when I came to the Emirates a couple of times this year, uh, this season with you all that actually it's amazing the difference that the organic positivity feels. And there isn't, there are, you know, I could pick one in 10,000 fans at that game would have a complaint, you know, from, from a Palace perspective. Whereas historically, similar to Arsenal, there'd be fans who, you know, even in winning, there's something wrong, you know, which blows my mind, you know. And and, and I, was, I did want to touch on it later on about, you know, people giving you all a hard time about you, especially Arsenal fans, celebrating. Uh, you know, I completely agree with what you were saying last week. Like, what's the point otherwise, you know? I celebrate corners sometimes, you know? Like, <laughs> why, why wouldn't you celebrate winning a game away, away no less, in a tough league, you know, when yeah. it's hard, when you're, you know, when, you, when we probably don't even know some of these players are struggling with injuries or mentally or physically, tough, you know, all these things. And, and then you have, you know... I want to say key or warriors, but you've got, there's this weird sort of, and it will happen to us. There'll be a backlash because like I said, at the start, it starts off very positive. Everyone's like, oh, Palace, you know, and then next season we'll be, we'll probably be like the way Brighton has seen, you know, everyone loved Brighton. Like, and then all of a sudden it's like, draw a game and fans are booing and it's like, booing, well, it's yeah. a screaming shoot at you. Yeah. And yeah. like, I, we've been very fortunate because of, like I said earlier, where we've obviously almost been out of, out of, you know, existence 10 years ago. A lot of the fans are still smart and old enough to remember that. Um, and I've, I've, I've touched on it a few times offline with you about, you know, you have a set, of, you have a generation of fans who don't know anything else other than you being a Premier League team and winning Invincibles. But now you've got a new younger generation. You might now start to see actually, well, this is what we are. This is what we're working towards. So for me, the worry will be when in five years and if we're an established team for, you know, 10, 15 years where fans will be like, yeah, but you know, we should be challenging for the top four and top six. And I'll turn around in my walking stick and be like, do you remember when we were protesting 15 years ago there? And, yeah, exactly. and, and, and that always happened. That's part of the movement, isn't it? So yeah, you know, sure. it's, it's, um, yeah. So initially I was going to say, yeah, uh, the, the feelings that I'd be happy with a draw, I didn't think we would, we were going to be as good as we were. Um, yeah. but I think we could both argue there for two very different reasons. Yeah. And what, what did you think the key battles were going to be on the pitch beforehand? I thought Arsenal would exploit the um, the right hand side of our our team, so Klein and Ayu. So Ayu offered a lot more protection than I was expecting um, for um, and Wilf. So they alternated, but I, I thought Wilf would find himself a bit higher up on the pitch and leave Nathaniel Klein more alienated. And um, while I'm not a big fan of any of our right backs really uh, in general, I think that everyone does a very competent job. But I think Nathaniel Klein's played he's played a run of games, maybe six or seven, but he's always looked like he's waiting to make a mistake and it's not for anything other than just, you know, a bit older and probably not sharp as he used to be, but it was very noticeable in the second half when, when Martinelli came on and Smith Rowe drifted out to the left. And then the, and when they put Saka out, that it did cause problems. And I was surprised that Arsenal didn't really sort of hammer onto that because I think as much as you can try going around, uh, Mitchell did a really good job on, on Saka, I thought. Um, but I thought Klein was there for the, not, I wouldn't say taking, but he would have been the weak point. And, and and you probably think the battle in midfield, Kiate is a warrior and is a hardworking, but you no, know, Partey's got everything in him to sort of, you know, top trumps him almost in terms of just impose himself. And I thought that would be the one where we would mm. struggle. I would thought, and I think in the first game, it was a similar story where I thought, you know, the mid, mid midfield battle would be crucial. And I think we won it in the first half and we sort of around par in the second half, I thought. 
Well, it was interesting, I think, from an Arsenal fan perspective, right? Like, you know, because even, you know, I know you said before the game as well, you were talking about that right-hand side for Palace. So it was interesting, obviously, part of this wasn't by design, but Tierney being injured, meaning Tavares coming in. Uh, I, and I don't know whether Tavares coming in was what influenced um, Arteta to to start Smith Rowe, as in he might have thought, I need I need someone with a little bit of more, a bit more of a kind of runner mindset, a bit more of a defensive mindset, and maybe Smith Rowe is the, the the person I need to play on the left. You know what it feels like. It's easy to say this in hindsight, but ultimately, what ended up ha- happening is you know we we have a completely new left hand side, a completely fresh left hand side, who both individually haven't had many minutes in a, in a long time, and you're asking them to play as a combination to exploit probably the area that we should have exploited the most. Um, and it, you know, it, it didn't, it, it, it didn't, it didn't happen. And in, in fact, you know, watching us play and, and trying to recall, you know, the, the, the sort of passages of play in the first half, I remember us trying to go down the right a lot more, uh, our right. So, you know, attacking your left-hand side, trying to get the ball through to Saka, that not really coming off for perhaps different reasons. But let's just say if there was a plan to go down and attack that side that you described, it you know it, it didn't happen and I think that really kind of played to your strengths to be honest and I think you for for whatever reason you know you took care of the other side as well and I think you know we we couldn't really we couldn't get that side going was it couldn't really f- figure out at the time whether it was a, a Sacker issue whether it was an Odegaard issue whether it was just a team issue but you know did it surprise you as to how comfortable you were able to do, take whatever we were throwing at you in that first kind of 30 minute period yeah, a little bit, but then I guess from an Arsenal point of view, and you know, this is me trying to be as, as kind as possible. I guess if you if you've tactically not been able to do something for twenty minutes as a manager and as a team, do you then change it after twenty minutes, or do you sort of say, you know, right, keep at it, keep at it. This is what we've been working on. This is what we've been working on. Um, because I, I thought I thought Tavares, I think you know, it wouldn't be an under. I didn't think he had a great game. I didn't think he had a very good game. But then the circumstances probably didn't help him too much. You know, I don't know how much notice he had that he was playing when Tierney. You know, it sounded it sounded very late in the day to find out Tierney was injured. You know, I feel like he might have been, you know, probably halfway onto the beach probably before he found out. And you know, I empathise. Yeah. But then you know, he's a professional. You have got to be ready for these things. But I know he's been hauled off against. Forest and now he's been hauled off against us pretty early and so it's not it's not great reading I don't know if he just needs more um I don't know just more support on that side perhaps but you know Tierney's a huge loss you know you know I, I you know I wasn't making a big song and dance about it when I heard but I was delighted you know because he's mm. he's he's one of your standout players you know really really gives it all you know I think he's pretty good defensively but from an attacking point of view he also causes us way too many headaches you know causes a lot of teams headaches so but and he's also our, a character where you'd feel like under the lights away at Palace on a Monday night you need a Kieran Tierney <laughs> yeah well I think you know it's strange because I think he and you can argue Xhaka to an extent you know you do you do watch them and you think yeah they're imposing themselves and getting involved and I didn't see so much of Xhaka um, on on Monday. I'll be honest; I, it took me a long time before I realised he was playing, and that's not me mm-hmm. being mean or or anything. I didn't realise until he got shifted out to the left, which was in the second half, when I could see him more. Um, but you know, but, but Tierney, you know, he's got something about him, and you know, you definitely know the presence. And because of where I was, I didn't see how how Ram, Ramsdale was quite a big figure. I find because when we were at the home game, because from behind you can see him marshalling and stuff. I thought I thought Gabriel didn't really help you know that side out too much and I, I thought he didn't have a I thought he'd have a better game against Mateta because Mateta actually isn't 
but he's not as good as what he may have looked on, on Monday in the sense that he doesn't normally bully defenders like that, you know, and I'm being generous of bully, but you know, he doesn't impose himself the way he, he like that. And I don't know if he was just wound up by something or felt the urge to do it, but he definitely gave Gabriel a good game. And I've seen Gabriel play against, you know, City and a few other people and thought, you know, before he got sent off, he was having a great game, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but in general, you know, I was surprised that there was a lot of balls that he let bounce and similar with Ben mm-hmm. White and just thought, go in there and just take him out, take the ball, take him out. You know, Gabriel loves a booking anyway. Just go and get booked and let him know that you're here. And he, and he just fed, he fed off that. And, um, which, and, and it was evident, you know, for his goal, he, you know, was very fortunate, but he, he just seemed to have a, an, an eternity to pull off a lot of things, I thought, against the defence. So, no, but in that first half, especially, I, I was surprised. I was surprised that we were able to score two goals in quick succession because that's not... Mm. And very different goals as well, right? You know, you've got the, the, the first goal from the set piece, but the second goal was, um, you know, it, it looks like a thing of beauty in the end, right? Like it's a, it, was a, it was a great set of combinations, I think made... Um, facilitated by the fact there was a bit, you know, Tavares and Gabriel both conspired in a, to make it look as kind of disastrous as it could be from a defensive standpoint. Were you were you surprised? I remember you you, you were you were surprised at the finish that IU uh, produced in the end. Yeah, I mean, it was from where I was sitting. Is you know, I had a direct view of it, and I, I, it was beautiful. It just it just shot a pure bullet into it, and I thought he's fantastic. Jordan's got that in his locker, um, and I think, but he he gets marked quite heavily in a lot of games, and also he a bit. You know, it goes a bit understated, but he's basically been playing out of position for a long time in, in his Palace career. He was our top goal scorer two years ago when he was playing through the middle and he was great, you know, really loved banging the goals in. Um, and now he's being asked to do a lot more um, grunt work for the team, you know, really put a shift in, you know. He goes down, he's he's a bit like Lacazette in, in that sense, you know. He could stay up a lot more, but he wins a lot of free kicks and fouls for just sort, sort of being very sort of Parisian in the way he, he's like, oh, his facial expressions. But he's got that old manness about him. He's got that experience, which against a player like Tavares works really well. Um, and as as you stated, Tavares left him far, left him wrong side for a start because he is both footed, but he left him far too open. Gabriel, again, surprised. I would have thought of a, for a defender of his ilk in terms of, you know, experience and international pedigree, he would be telling Tavares, be really at him. And and it just seemed like Tavares was on the back foot when, when it came in and mm-hmm. wasn't really expecting I to have the poise to score the goal. So from a Palace point of view, it was about being clinical and that's all you can ask for from I, you know. It's really 101, but hit the target. That's all you've got to do because you felt like if you hit the target, it would go in or it would cause a sort of fiore in the box. Um, but it was a great finish. You know, I didn't, I'm not 100% convinced Anderson meant the pass wholeheartedly, but you know what, you know, I'll take it because he is very good at passing and he's very good at, you know, the long balls and diagonals, but that almost looked a bit too good. It was a bit like just, just whack it at him and he'll do something as opposed to first time and score. But it was a beautiful move on our side and it's kind of what Patrick probably wants us doing. He probably wants us getting involved in, in, in moments like that, being clinical, being concentrating very hard you know because Arsenal did have chances you know so in the second half especially um that was I wouldn't say it's the polar opposite but I joked about it after I've never seen a team come out so early for the second half as in I can't I genuinely can't recall a team coming out so early you know to the point where they were still the little kids were still doing the halftime show and you know trying to score better and and the boys were out and you know they looked they looked like a rocket had been launched yeah, and uh, it 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 was it was really funny that because obviously I noticed it as well, just seeing our players out there, and it was early that they came out, and I think that Arteta 
has done that in the past. He's he's got the players out early, and I don't know if he, if you noticed, but at half time, um, when the when the whistle blew for half time, Arteta was actually shouting at a lot of our players to get in the dressing room quicker. So he actually had a massive go at Lacazette to get in the dressing room quicker because he clearly was furious and had a bunch of things to say. Um, but the, you know, for, for the damage had been done from my perspective. That that kind of first thirty minutes when you went two 0 up. The thing that Palace did incredibly well after that is just kind of go, oh, we're tuning up and we can we can just see this out. And you were really, really well organised so that when those changes did happen, because ultimately what we then ended up doing was putting every attacking threat that we had onto the pitch, essentially, taking Xhaka, putting him to left back, effectively then going into a back three um, and giving ourselves loads of opportunities to get men in the final third. Um, I think the, the the stats are very misleading for this game because the stats, if you look at the full-time stats, the stats make it look like Arsenal really dominated this game, etc. And it's absolute nonsense because essentially you go 2-0 down early on. What do Palace need to do? They just need to like, they just need to see the game out. Um, so although like the, the stats would suggest that, you know, I think we had about 70% possession over the game, it's completely pointless. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're two nil down, that's going to happen. Um, and I thought Palace did incredibly well because even the, the chances that we did have, you know, there were, there were amazing chances. I, yes. I think Emil Smith Rowe should have probably done better with his. I thought, um, Odegaard should probably do better with his, but it wasn't like we missed a range of sitters and it, it, you know, we, we, we got in behind you over and over again. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I hadn't paid attention to the, the stats thereafter because I guess, as we both know, there's only one that matters for fans. and you know. Exactly. What, what, but it, I think it's very telling. I think the Odegaard miss and then him giving away the penalty, I don't think they were that far apart. I think he knew he had, you know, I, I'm convinced that if he scores that, that we crumble. Maybe not crumble, you know, it's probably not right, but we basically would draw that 2-2. Mm-hmm. I think Arsenal, you know, have enough quality to then get the, the extra breath, you know, silence the crowd a little bit get it going I think we draw it 2-2 if he scores and I think it, he he then afterwards I watched Odegaard for a couple of minutes afterwards and you could tell he was still sort of talking to himself and st- still a right. bit like still a bit like I can't believe you know he knows I mean a player of that quality has to be scoring that goal I think that's the difference like if they, there's probably only a handful of players you, you think him and Saka you could probably argue Smith Rowe if they in that position you expect the net to hit you know. Well, exactly, because it's very frustrating because Smith Rowe, statistically, in terms of conversion, is supposed to be our best finisher. And, you know, the chance he had, you really felt at this level, when you're away at someone like Crystal Palace, you're not going to get lots of chances. And at this level, if you're going to be doing serious things, you've just got to take them because you're not going to dominate Crystal Palace. We saw what happened with Man City coming to Palace. You know, Man City struggle. If Man City are going to struggle, Arsenal are going to struggle. You take your chances. If you don't do that, you you, you pay the penalty, and and you know, and, and we lose fair and square. Three nil is a real humbling. You know, it's a real humbling. Yeah, I'm especially. You know, I know you're going to touch on it in a little bit, but you know, you've you've got a lot to play for still this season, and you know, this uh, we spoke about it offline, but the, the seven goal swing to Tottenham this weekend, you know, in goal difference, the points, the the momentum, the general feeling, the, you know, 
your your eking out results and playing okay there all of a sudden you know the globetrotters you know yeah. smashing teams left right and center well, no but let's let's explore you know. that like, let, let me right. let me get your views on that because the thing is obviously you know we we on the arsaholics podcast we every week now we reflect and we talk about you know whether you know what we think about the top four race and generally speaking partly because the results have been okay you know it's been a relatively kind of positive outlook with a kind of healthy sense of you know arsenal fan pessimism around kind of <laughs> you know not trying to be too um too overboard but the fact is we have just lost i think it's one of the, it's going to be one of those things where now like every week depending on the results the outlook um shifts but from a from um you know a, a third party's perspective after this result you know Tottenham and Arsenal level on points. Let's not forget, you know, there are other teams who are still searching for this Man United and it's still technically in this. Um, Chelsea are sort of dropping points. You never know if they're going to get dragged into this. Um, But, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't look as rosy for Arsenal, um, although still having a game in hand over Spurs. From your perspective, um, you know, as as a Crystal Palace fan and and, in no agenda, what's your feeling? Like, how do you see this, this top four race going? Well, I mean, I, I never want Spurs to do well, so you know, I do have a mini agenda. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's suit. I mean, the pros for for Arsenal, and let's start with that, is that if you can drag Chelsea into this gunfight, this that's a good thing, you know, because all of a sudden the pressure isn't just you dropping from fourth, you know, a bit like how Leicester had done in the last couple of years. It was just Leicester, 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 Leicester falling. If you can drag Chelsea into this carnage that suits your agenda a little bit more because all of a sudden they're the bigger, you know, without being me, I know I'm on an Arsenal podcast, but Chelsea are obviously the reigning European champions and world champions for that. If you can drag them into this, that's a good thing because I think it might take some of the headlines off you, um, which is a good thing because I think there's a, I want to say mini anti-Arteta agenda out there. I think a lot of people are waiting in the wings to just be like, wow, you should have got rid of Aubameyang. Wow, well, Ozil, you know, all these things are going to come flying Mm. through the roof. But, you know, which is, you know, not fair because I think, you know, he's it's a it's a it's a thin line between that. But it reminds me of your your your, your season under uh, Unai Emery when you got to the final of the Europa League and you just missed out on the Champions League, mm-hmm. and and it's a similar thing. You were so good for the majority of that season. I think you were like fourth in April then as well, maybe or like really like you know. And then you just went. I don't know. You just everyone just imploded Pitulated, and yeah. yeah, like you know. And I don't think you have the same mentality of that but I'm, I'm sure there are some players in that squad who still have mini nightmares about that final and that last sort of month and a half and hopefully if anyone is still there from that squad there you know because I know Saka and a few others you know were, were blooded by Emery but yeah they're, they're, they're now going to say look actually this is the difference between being considered a good player and a great player and actually what we need to do now is you know like Arteta said in the post-match you know hold our hands up, get on with things. But for, from, a, from a neutral point of view, I think Arsenal have done a really good job of like managing their own expectations because at no point was it a given that anyone thought you were going to finish in the top four. And then all of a sudden, you know, you shouldn't be surprised that a team has finished eighth and eighth back to back and now in a position where the squad's a little bit thin. You know, the results, you know, are going to get harder. You know, this is it. This is full-on squeaky bum time for a lot of people. I guess the bonus of Chelsea at time of speaking, still have European football. I think they're, they're getting a bit of a beating from Real Madrid at the moment. So I don't know how much longer that's going to last, but you know, that, that benefits you. And then yeah. Man United, I mean, they're the most Jekyll and Hyde team in the league, arguably in terms of what you're going to get. Um, Spurs, sad to say, but I think you, we all know it on the Arseholics and 
are playing well and look like a team that are hitting form under a wonderful manager who's mm-hmm. got the pedigree, he's got the experience, who's now got some players other than Kane and, and Son. You look at uh, Kuvaleski and you, you Doherty and all of a sudden, <laughs> all of them look like really good players. You know, yeah. I know Newcastle made them look like, you know, the best team ever, but you still have to put those chances away. So I think, um, I think the North London derby being scheduled for so late probably hasn't done anyone any favours actually because I think it would be great to just get that over and done with because actually I don't know how well you can all focus you know it's the cliche of focusing on the next game the next game when you know the biggest game of the season really is that because yeah. you can argue a combination of results still means you get there and that's something going to be playing for there you know there isn't mm-hmm. going to be a set of results unless you lose the next five or something ridiculous you know and both of you do that there isn't going to be something on the line yeah, um, yeah. so that's a strange one to be going to get to but from a neutral point of view I think I think you've got to think Arsenal probably can edge it because of you know you know you've been you're there and it's, you, you know you know if you do everything if you win all your games you'll be fine Spurs you know I've heard a few times and read on a few things that if they win all their games yeah they make it but they've got to get through you I think the Chelsea games the Chelsea Arsenal games huge it's probably arguably if not bigger yeah. than the North London derby because you know you win that all of a sudden Chelsea are right in it you lose that and then you think Spurs are going to be above you at some point yeah. going into the derby. Psychologically, is that squad ready to, you know, Deal go... That. Mm. Is, it away? is that White Hart Lane, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, away at White Hart Lane, probably the penultimate or the third to last game of the season behind Spurs, knowing you've got to get a win. Harry Kane scored, what, 100 goals against you or something ridiculous, you know. It's, you know, that, that's... But then, you know, you, you could argue as an Arsenal fan, if you if you were given that at the start of the season, that it would become a sort of make or break end of White Lane. Let's see what your team's made of. You know, I've, I've got a good feeling that you'll you'll edge it, but God, I think you're going to all go through some pain in the next six or seven weeks. So I don't empathise with that, but I think I think you will just edge it above Spurs because you know ultimately Spurs are Spurs, and that's what some people always always have to come back to. They will find a way to implode. You know, for every 5-1, there is what happened at Burnley where Conte pretty much resigned. You know, <laughs> there is always, well, there I mean, is always that. Like, that's what, that's what I'm hoping for. And to be, to be honest, like, you know, it's also good that the title race is still alive because Liverpool still got to play Tottenham and Liverpool, you know, it, if the title race was dead and Liverpool thinking about the Champions League only, then, you know, that's probably not great for us. But it's alive, so you know I'm I'm really hoping that Liverpool can do us a favour that day. But um, you know, obviously as an Arsenal fan, appreciate your optimism. I think all of us can you know need to be picked up a little bit right now because it's just so precarious. But the media don't do the greatest job, right? You know, right now the the story that's sort of running on Sky, for example, is you know uh, is it all now going wrong at Arsenal? And I think a lot of that is fueled by the fact that we've you know also picked up a couple of injuries because I think there's injury to Tierney, potentially to Partey as well which the Partey injury is a little bit unclear. Tommy Asu's return date is, 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 is kind of, is always. I, I think, I, I think the Partey one you're going to have to convince me is, is not, isn't a blessing. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're talking about our, our, our player of the month, you know, our reigning player of the month there. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think, sadly for you, both times I've seen him play, I've just been just desperately underwhelmed. Uh, and when I do watch him play, uh, I'm still, but I probably don't focus on him as much as maybe you all do. But, you know, I, I think, I think. Well, to be honest, I think part of it is a lack of alternatives for us anyway. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's kind of the issue. So I think, um, 
it's it's a case where Xhaka and Partey are, are just so obviously our our best two central midfielders. Sambi Lokonga um, has played games where he's been really really good, but I think at no point oh, where, where, uh, where is where is that fella now? Actually, I've not seen I mean, him ages. A, yeah, so I mean, he came on. He came on. I think against you guys for, <laughs> um, briefly, um, but you know, and he you know he, he'll obviously get more games now. Uh, but the but but he's still a raw. He's still pretty raw. He's still not good enough to dominate games. Um, and you know we're getting in that business end of the season. So listen, everyone's going to have to pull their part. Um, it's gonna it's gonna be a ris- real squad effort to you know if we are going to be able to achieve top four. And and um, but you know what? If not, it's life. It's football. Um, you know we just got to try and go again. And 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 you know as fans, just accept that it's progressed somewhat and 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 hope for better next season. Um, I do make want to now talk to you a bit more about the team that you love um, because, you know, it is a really unique opportunity for us to have someone with, with, uh, with the knowledge of, of Palace on. And, and I don't, and I know it's been, it's, you know, you've talked to me about how it's been somewhat frustrating at times having this big shadow on Vieira with regards to his Arsenal background. And, you know, people always talking about the Arsenal background of Vieira and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, indulge us a little bit because of the fact that we are an Arsenal podcast and you know he is a, a club legend a club hero um you know it was it was absolutely awesome when you know from our perspective as fans when he took when he when he got the palace job uh to see a kind of club legend at, uh, uh managing a premier league club um but you know it, it wasn't something that was handed to him on a silver plate necessarily he he was very publicly not first choice there were other people who were courted etc um I, I i really want to take this time to really get into some detail about your thoughts on vera but so so let's go right from the, the the start i guess when when he was named as your manager how did you feel at that time what were your thoughts at that time him coming into the job i was um i was i was pretty happy with it actually like i said i i liked I like the idea that we were going to go all in, and I think, and by that I mean the the two the two people that were heavily linked were Lucien Favre, uh, who you know is is a very good coach as well. Obviously, he's, he's done some good things, but you know, sort of hit a bit of a dynamic that you know similarly had it managed in the in the Premier League, and previously that it was Nuno, who was you know fifteenth choice for the Spurs job, and you know didn't handle the the because you, you have to compare you know apples and apples a little bit because they both got jobs, Nuno and Patrick, that they weren't first choice for. And it could easily have been the other way around when Nuno really rose and be like, well, you know, but he seemed to always feel in- insular to it. Whereas it says a lot about Patrick Vieira as a man and a manager that he knew very openly, handled it very well in the press conference, knowing he wasn't first choice. And he was very clear, goes, it doesn't matter what choice it was. It's, it's, it's me who will define, you know, how this goes. It won't be because you know, this person didn't get the job or that person, it will still all be because I didn't do this or I didn't do that, which is the mark of a man who's won everything. You know, he didn't, you know, he's not overawed by this. You know, he's won a World Cup, he's won a Premier League. You know, I think managing Crystal Palace doesn't even, in his eyes, is, is a great achievement, but doesn't doesn't give him the fear that he may have had in, in previous uh, virtues. I think what was great was that uh, a man of his stature coming to, to South London in terms of what he's achieved in, in his playing career is a wonderful thing to see. Um, but again, I highlighted it earlier, but from, from a cultural and a, a, and a community aspect, having a, a black manager in a club, in an area, in a community, which has predominantly got young black and brown players, is it, a huge thing because all of a sudden, you know, players like Elise and Zaha, 
and and Eze, you know, the, the young men who've grown up seeing Patrick Vieira can say, well, actually, look, we're, we're being coached by one of the greatest midfielders in the world, and he's black, and he's the manager, and actually, we, you know, we're, we're not just players, we're not just people, you know, and it, and it fits in with a nice tide of you looking at Rashford and Sterling's and players being more empowered to do things, you know, really be more vocal on racism and and what, you know, should be done and hunger and things outside of football. And I, and I see that with Zaha in the last 18 months, you know, and having someone like Patrick Vieira to lean on um, has, has been incredible for him. And, and you know, having having him join and, you know, just, just seeing the way he carries himself because it's very cliche. Everyone's expecting the Vieira of in the tunnel against, you know, Neville and Keane and all that when they see him. I don't think I've ever seen him raise his voice, you know, even at the games. He, he's not shout. He's not. He's not bellowing on the sidelines. He's not screaming. Very compelling. I've only seen him. Ang- I think I've only seen him angry once. I can't remember what game it was, but I think it might have even been Spurs. <laughs> um, but uh, away, I think I've only ever seen him angry once, and that was it, maybe. And other than that, he's very sort of like, well, you know, it's our own. It's of his own making, and that that composure has been a huge difference to the team because he knows we're a young team. And he's been in young teams. He was a young player when he first broke into the Arsenal team and did all the great things he did. You know, he. I just don't think you can't be anything but impressed with, the, with when he talks. Um, and, and the point you were making earlier about does he get the credit he deserves? Probably not. I think there's this weird, you know, he got sacked at Nice, so he must be terrible. But, you know, better managers than him have been sacked, you know, <laughs> you know and, and they carry on. I think there is a stigma that, that young black managers can't cut it in... in in the Premier League or can't cut it in, in football management. That's why we don't have as many. And I think he doesn't need to carry the burden, but if there was going to be a black manager who could carry it, it's definitely probably arguably the most successful player that we've, you know, had manage us ever, you know, so, and a real break from the Brexit managers that we've had previously, which is just, (laughs) which is just a beautiful feeling. You know, like I said, as a young South Londoner, you know, Brown, you know, got, got a little Brown little boy, you know, go like, it's nice to move away from the Allardyces and the Holloways and the Warnocks and Pulis. Oh my God. To like Pardew, you know, you name them, we've had them, you know, all right. Holloway is probably you know, a little less except you, but you know, we've always, you know, Hodgson to his defense wasn't, you know, in that era, but he was of a mold, yeah, you know, yeah. basically it was like these guys, they all weird and deal. They know what they're doing. They, they, everything gets done behind the closed doors in the pub over a cigarette, etc. You know, it didn't really feel right for us. It didn't reflect us as a fan base. And it was very evident, you know, we were much more tetchy with the, the, the fans then uh, with the players probably, but the players still got a tune. They got a tune out of some good players, but all of a sudden he brings that forward momentum that a club like Palace needs. And it, it's not going to last forever, you know, like, you know, history will dictate that Patrick Vieira will be judged on his second season historically, you know, uh, uh, when he was at New York at Nice and all these things. You know, at Nice he was unlucky. He got, you know, he had a young team, a few injuries, Europe, and you know, and he had Balotelli to contend with, and he just had yeah. a bad run. He got sacked. You know, I don't think we're. Well, I say I don't think we're that trigger happy. I'm probably one of the only Palace fans who still thinks Frank de Boer sacking was a bad thing. But you know, I think the board gave him every chance to succeed this time. I think Frank the board wasn't given that chance to succeed because he was basically asked to manage with one hand behind his back and then when it got going it just never did but Vieira was given a clear remit had a big say in the players has made players better like that's actually one of the beautiful things to watch happen unravel whereas Roy was brilliant at training players to just be you know seven out of ten in the right position 
know your man, you know, almost the George Graham have the rope as the back four, you know, that's what he was great at. Everyone knew that. Whereas it's very visible that Mitchell's got better. Elise's got better. IU's got better. Klein's got better. You know, I, di- I didn't see much of Anderson or, or Mark Gury beforehand, but you know, they, they were good players, but all, all our players, God, even Joel Ward has got better. You know, I just didn't think it could happen. And so it's visible through good coaching and actually, you know, you know, good communication that can happen. So yeah, he's, he's, it's been brilliant to, to watch it unravel. And he's unified the fans, you know, which is no easy feat in any club, I don't think. And, and what do you, you know, about those making players better? Um, from from what you understand that goes on in the, you know, on the training ground, is he, um, is he a coach that relies on the support of his coaching staff a lot? Is he like one of those Ferguson types who has, you know, very much delegates to kind of specialists or is he quite a hands-on coach from what you understand? From, from what I understand, he's, he's, he's quite hands-on, uh, but he, he also likes to let the players express themselves. And I think he's been given the chance to manage a very creative team, um, which, you know, when you think that we've got Zaha, Eze, Gallagher, um, Elise, you know, uh, Edwards, um, you know, very creative players actually um, in that midfield, and he's got to try and shoehorn quite a few of them. I think, I think his his ability to explain to players why they're not playing. I heard, I read a great story the other day that when when we be, when we beat Man City at the Etihad earlier this season, when we were two, Benteke was tra- he was dropped and he was warming up. And he was talking to the to the Man City subs apparently, and he and apparently he said, like, "Oh no, I completely understand why he did it. You know, we've got to be in this together." You know, he wasn't complaining. He wasn't, you know, talking and saying the manager doesn't understand. He was like completely supportive of what we're trying to achieve. That this is the best thing for the for the team, and we don't seldomly get that that often at Palace, where everyone's on the same page. You know, when you think that Eze was probably our Player of the Year last year, he's not featured at all. I know he's had a big injury, but he's been fit since January. He's not really featured very much. And it's not been noticeable, and it's also not been verbally noticeable. And there's no, there's no clamour in the fans. You know, every once in a while, you see him on the bench, and oh, could have brought him on. But no two parties are, you know, in disagreement. There's a very sort of fair and understanding process to it. And I think, again, that comes from the training, you know, on the ground where he's sort of saying, look, this is what I want. I don't think he thinks Eze's there um, in terms of the team aspect. I think he thinks he can use him in in certain parts. Um, and I think that comes from the way he manages the players out, outside of the outside of the pitch. And, you know, he's very, from what I've read and what I've heard, he's a bit cliche, but he's friends from, to the chairman, to the tea lady, you know, he goes in and asks what's on the lunch menu, goes in, you know, to check everyone's happy, you know, ask them about the weekend, all, all these things that you, know, you think a top flight manager can't have time to do, but yeah, he does. Um, partly because I think he trusts the coaching staff to instill it in the players. I think he trusts the players to say, look, you want to play here? then fine. You want a bigger move? Fine. You know, show me why, you know, I don't think, like I said, he don't think he screams at players. I don't think he gets particularly angry. And I don't think he, you know, opens, you know, in the Roy Keane epilogue or soon as was like, when I was playing here this night, I don't think he cares for that stuff. He doesn't talk about all the things he's done because it doesn't bother, you know, players will be already impressed by it. Then he doesn't need to hear about it. So I think he, um, I think he exudes a calmness that transcends onto the players that very rarely are we rattled, I think, as a team. I think we're inexperienced and that's why we concede goals late and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're a little bit of concentration, but I don't think we're rattled. You know, I think we're just like nervous, um, which is it's just something he's going to have to keep on working on. Mm. And I remember when, when I think back to 
when Arsenal went from, you know, Wenger to Emery and it was having someone, you know, manager who played a certain style and and it was very clear when Emery came in um, what were the few things that he started doing that, you know, kind of were, were, were changes from the from the Wenger era in terms of the style of play. Um, similarly, with regards to Vieira, you know, you, you, you had a long spell with Hodgson. In this time that Vieira has been there, what have been some of the key features of kind of the changes in how you've played? Anything system-wise, structurally, and any anything that you that is really of note? Um, it's, it's very evident structurally, and you know that he wants his centre backs to be able to you know play football. You know he 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 very much you know when you think last season our centre back pairing was Kiarte and James Tompkins, Kiarte the makeshift centre mid centre-back as well at that from an injury perspective with Gary Cahill, who, who I love, but again, similarly, you know, we're talking about three players over 30, a lot of experience. He signed two centre-backs in the space of five days, you know, from, you know, signed Mark from Chelsea, Anderson as well, um, from Leon for 35 million for the pair. He was like, right, that's where it's going to start. If we're going to do anything, it starts from these two guys. Don't worry about left-back, right-back. The centre-backs have to be able to play football. And, he wants us to play out from the back, but not in the not in the the Man City way. He's happy for us to to try and pass the ball from the back, but no no grievance with you know the keeper shooting out there just to buy some time. But again, it's very evident that if it was going to work, it had to be the two centre backs that um, lead from the front. You know, from and, and that has led us to be able to play a much higher line because you know essentially Mark Margui is. Um, you know, he's rapid, you know, we can play a much higher line. Anderson can read the game, is, is, is quite the presence as well, physically quite intimidating, gives a chance for Mitchell, who's quite pated to to spring in from the overlap. And um, and and there again, you know, you look at someone like Mitchell, who was a good defender last season, um, and, and now as an England left-back, uh, you know, we're going to work with that, we're going to run with that for the time being, because he's still England's first choice left-back at the moment, because he was last game, so um, I'm going with that. But, he, um, but you know, to, to, to have three England players in a Palace squad is ridiculous, is ridiculous. Like we, you know, I think the last time we had that, we're talking Solarco, Wright and Bright maybe, Um Maybe even further back, you know, maybe Sansom and Wright. Regardless, it's been forty years, you know. And I know Conor Gallagher is Chelsea's player, but but it's very evident that that he wanted us to to play with industry, with actual energy, which is which is very funny because it's somewhat misleading. Because Conor Gallagher actually, I don't know if you saw any of these stats. Conor Gallagher didn't actually touch the ball very much against Arsenal. Like he he actually, I think he had maybe behind the keepers the least amount of touches, but watching Conor Gallagher and watching him just run around like an absolute maniac. Yeah. Yeah. But that sets the tone. It adds the extra 10% to all the other players. And, you know, all of a sudden you see people springing, you know, I've I've not seen Wilf play to this level in four, maybe five years, you know, to the point where I think he's already got, you know, he's got more goals than Jamie Vardy. He's got more, I think he's, you know, he's got more goals than Smith Rowe, you know, in in terms of like, he's a, he's our top goal scorer, but the players is ahead of, I'm like, are you sure he's ahead of that player? You know, and you know, he, you know, I think he's, I think he's like the joint fifth or something. But this is Wilf we're talking about, someone who is considered, and you've seen him play. You know, he always looks like he's ready to just explode, yeah. um, and more often than not, to his own detriment. But Vieira channeled that in a way which has made him a talisman for the Elises and the Ezos, but also on the pitch. You know, you know where, where he where he knows that this is going to happen, and you know, Vieira being that tough tackling midfielder probably said to him. This is what I would do to you. <laughs> this is what I would want to do to you if I was playing against you, you know, etc. Mm. You can see the tweaks in his attitude. Um, you know, I don't know if he wound them up too much when he got sent up against Spurs 
on Boxing Day. But um, e- either way, the, the feeling in general is that we're going to play pacey football. We're going to play exciting football where um, we are going to let in goals in terms of last minute and concentration. We are going to be tired, but we're going to play with an energy. And he's dropped the average age, a bit like Arteta has. You know, He's quietly gone about dropping the average age of a very old squad. And I still think we're only a third of the way through the overhaul because there's still another seven or eight players' contracts running out this season. Mm-hmm. Um, players don't play very much. And and it's do the, do the board now look at this and go, that's a great first year, you know, and here goes another 50 to 75? Or do they do they start to backtrack a little and say, well, we've got a good squad here and they're young, so let's just push on with these guys. You know, obviously investment is key, but it's a level investment. It's a play. I mean, ultimately the acid test will be against Chelsea in a couple of weeks in the FA Cup semi-final. We don't have mm. Conor Gallagher, who, who, who is illegible, he can't play. It'll be evident there that we've got James McArthur, who we love, he isn't the same player, but it will mm. probably play. Um, and then next season, how do we replace that energy, that industry? And, you know, we probably still need another striker as well. So there's there's a lot of things, you know, going on at the club, which are positives. Essentially, if you told me at the start of the season, we'd be safe on the 6th mm. of April, I'd be delighted, you know, well, especially it, with all the circumstances. It, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, know, you, you did keep talking about being safe um, and and just, you know, I suppose slightly linking that to your point about investment. Owners are interesting, aren't they? Because, you know, quite often it's a case where if you struggle in a season, that doesn't necessarily give the owners the... Um, uh, the the kick up the backside that they that they need to actually get their hand in their wallet and 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 you know provide funds for kind of you know more investment. It's actually often a case where if they see real progress, they're then willing to pay even more money the next summer to try and kind of you know kind of do even better. And it's fascinating actually because you know when you look at where you know like you say maybe it's only maybe you've only just become mathematically safe, but you're currently sitting in ninth place in the league. And I know that there's a big gap between ninth and eighth. But all those teams above you have all at some point, literally like, you know, even within the last few weeks, have been still in a top four battle. Mm. So Wolves are one place above you. And it's only a few few games ago that people stopped thinking them as top four candidates, right? So essentially, you know, Man United are are seventh, you're ninth, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's insane. It's remarkable, right? So... If I, if I, if you take that and then add to the fact that you know you you've managed to draw a ridiculous amount of games, it's like it's like mental. I think you've yeah. drawn literally about half your games, like yeah. thirteen games or something like this, ridiculous. Where a lot of those games are points dropped in the last couple of minutes or whatever, you know, it's it you know. When I look at that, I think you know, as an outsider, when you just look at the, that objectively, you sort of think, oh shit, they're onto something here, right? Like there's that's that's really quite impressive. So I mean. I mean, what do you think? I mean, you know, again, maybe as a Palace fan, you don't want to get too ahead of yourself. But is there any reason why Palace next season, with a decent amount of investment, could be challenging for European places? Uh, no, not not really. So I, I love getting ahead of myself. I guess the next season will be more telling in the sense that people now won't see us as a surprise. It ultimately, will now be yeah. a bit more of an understood force. You know, that ultimately that's what happens. Really good teams figure it out. You know, you know the, the teams around us. You know, you, you, it, from a perspective point of view, you know, you look around, you think Leicester probably have been very unfortunate with multiple things. I look at Villa and I'm worried about Villa a lot because they just seem to have. The, they're the richest team in the world. You know, they seem to just always be buying players. I, I saw they were linked with Calvin Phillips this morning. I'm just thinking, 
I mean, they must just have money coming up. And then you think Newcastle will obviously spend money. Mm-hmm. Um, Everton, you know, if they stay up, have the potential to be... There's a lot of circumstance involved in it. But I think from our point of view, it's re- retaining the nucleus of a squad. So I think I think that the general feel amongst the hierarchy is that we will try and blood players. Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, you know, if Arsenal came in tomorrow and offered us 45 million for Elise, we would sell him. Because that's... You know, we've bought him for seven million from Reading. We've made him a better player. You know, similar with Eze. If Man City came in and went, we would sell him. Not because it's, you know he should go because it's Man City, but you know whoever came, if Villa came in, we would sell him because that's mm. that's part of the. We don't. We've historically been burnt on giving you know really average players really long contracts with huge money. You know, Mamadou Sakho, Max Mayer. Um, you know. No, I wouldn't say Wilf at all, but you know, Wilf's on huge money. You know, Ben Teke was on unbelievable money for four or five years. You know, he's had to drop it down. Um, just huge wages. It was just not sustainable for a club of our size. Um, and now we've now dropped that down drastically. So the, the, the club itself wants to be somewhat self-sufficient. So that could be the only hindrance that they're not going to go out and they're not going to go out there and see, I don't know, you know, even though I think we should, you know, players like Richarlison or St. Maximum who who aren't completely, you know, if technically we're above them, you know, we're, we're, we're a more attractive proposition in some respect, um, you know, London-based, you know, good manager, you know, onto something. Do we then think we can get those players? I think we should be trying, but I don't think we can afford to go and spend 45 million and 200 grand a week on those players. Um, it will have to be a little bit of what we've been doing. So, you know, the, I mean, you might remember him from when you played against Forrest, but um, the young the young kid there, Brennan Johnson, um, or, or the right back Spence. Or, we Spence, need to be, yeah. yeah, we need to be shopping in those markets still. But the problem is it's very evident that we do that now because, you know, we're, we're when we're linked with players, it's, you know, we're not the only ones who know about it. We got very lucky with release, so we bought him on the release clause, got him quickly. Eze, we did the same thing. You know, we, we scoured it out. But we've got a good network for the lower league. So I think from an investment point of view, we, we would never invest in players that are going to then take us to the next level. We'd always be buying players on the aspiration that they will get us to the next level and then they would go to the next level without us. So it's a real, I think that's how the, the hierarchy see it. So from, from a realistic Palace fan point of view, a uh, top half finish is, is a good, you know, we've only done it once in the Premier League, I think. So that that's a good season. Yeah. And, you know, an FA Cup prom, which I've always wanted since the last one is a great season. You know, we've got that. I don't I don't see anyone throwing a hundred million at established Premier League players mm-hmm. to get us to the next level because I just don't it's too big a risk, I think, for, for a club like Palace. Because you look at Everton and, and clubs, you know, you could argue until Newcastle got took over, you know, that level, but it's too big a risk to throw that kind of money and, and hope for for, you know, sixth or fifth, especially when you look at the guys up there. You know, you look at imagine this time next year if we're talking about Tottenham, Arsenal and Palace in the battle for fourth, fifth and it's, you're in different worlds, you know, we're just in different worlds and we just have to accept that it takes a long time to get there. You know, you were, you were eighth back to back and you're just, just trying to get there, you know, and mm-hmm. it's not easy, is it? And you've spent, you spent some good money on some good players too, you know? So, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I can handle the stress to be honest. Uh, I just, I guess to, to close it off is, 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 is a player that you can see, um, you know, adding quality to palace next season, Eddie Nketiah, is that a possibility for you? 
Yeah, one hundred percent. He's exactly the type of player I think our scouting team. I I, I joked about it with you the other night. I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if we already signed him. If there's already something in in because he's playing like a player who doesn't want to get injured. <laughs> and the only time he played well was against us. So, um, and I thought he did all right when he came on. But you know, if we get Eddie and Ketcher for anything between five and ten million, you know, I, I don't know. I, I know the tribunal makes it up as it goes along. Um, that's an absolute steal because that's still a young English striker who's got potential to be better he's not you can't write him off now you know yeah. he's you know you look at um, some of the other guys you've got Balogun who start to really show up at Borough and a few other guys you know Martinelli and younger players give them time can make it work and Ketchum hasn't got time now because his contract's running out unless something miraculous happens where he signs a, yeah, a he you know won't. two or three he won't and I, I think clubs like Palace should be right up there for him because there's something quite nice about him being at a club where he's not expected to score you know, I think when you play for Arsenal and you're the other striker because you've come on because the other striker isn't scoring, they're basically like, well, you better score, mate, because, you know, you're the other striker. You know, we got rid of Aubameyang. Martin doesn't play through the middle. Black hasn't scored in a long time. So, yeah, go, you know, you're a striker, right? Go show me you're a striker. I think at Palace, he doesn't have that stress. I think he, he, he fits into the system quite well. We've got a lot of nippy players. We've got a lot of players that he's friends with. There's a lot of players he's played with previously in under 21s and other, you know, and he, and he knows, and you know, I think it's a lovely fit if we can go and make that. I think the only, you know, downsides, does he cut, I don't know what kind of money he's on at Arsenal, but there's no way he can come in on big dog money and expect to be a starter. I, I don't think he's on big dog money at Arsenal, to be honest. So, so yeah, I think that I'd, I'd be very, very surprised given where he is in his career, given how important the next move is for him, whether he, you know, he he tries to get his bollocks out on the table with regards to how much money he wants to get paid. I think if Palace turn around to him and actually say, you know, you 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 can be a player for us, you know, we'll 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 start you and you know all the rest of it. Um, I think it makes complete sense. Uh, I think I if he, I think I think Palace, I think Southampton because they've mm. got obviously they've got Broya who's going to go back, and you know there's, there's so many good clubs in that sort of middling echelon of teams. You can argue that you know Jamie Vardy's getting old and, and actually you know you, get, you stick him in Leicester, he does a good job too. I think I think I just mm. think he's a good striker. I just think he's obviously not for whatever reason he's just not ever. I, I don't know if he's ever felt that Arteta's ever truly rated him. Mm. I think he, through circumstance he's been given a chance to play. And I think he's always going to be the rod behind the Obamayang pain of, well, we got rid of Oba, so you must be, you know, really good. That's why you're still here. It's unfortunate yeah. for him that that's happened. But I don't think he, I, th- I think he goes to another team and does really well. And I hope it's at Palace because I think, um, like I said, I think he fits the mould. You know, even even when he came on for whatever it was, the 15 or 24, you know, hit the bar, he set one up. You know, he, he looked like a player that was, you know, eager. Like, so it adds to my point that I think he's already signed for us, to be honest. But, um, and he wanted to show Patrick what he can do. So, um, But yeah, I, I'd love to have him at Palace. Very interesting twist. Um, all right, mate, listen, I tell you what, we're going to call it a day there. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been a phenomenal first ever guest on the show. Um, and you know, obviously goes without saying love to have you back, uh, if you are ever willing to be back on the show. Um, I imagine that, you know, you're now going to open up kind of our viewing numbers to all the you know millions of palace fans around the world who obviously know you, um, because, you know, you were a star of, of the, uh, documentary oh, yeah. um, when Eagles, when Eagles dare, that's what it's called, right? Yeah. 
when he was there. You know, I mean, that was a fantastic 0.3 seconds of fame. That yeah, I mean, those those were the days. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like I said, I I've got a newfound appreciation for for the the pre and post effort that goes into doing this, especially with you and Miz and Aaron, and you're doing a great job. I really, like I, I genuinely enjoy listening, you know, because you're my mates and I like you all. But you know, you, you you've probably we've not had a chance to touch on it. I'm gonna do it quickly, but you've brought the feel good factor to being an Arsenal fan back. Like I said. I've been at the club when it's been like toxic with you before and you're like, oh my God, why are you all so angry? You know, you're the post AFTV generation. Do you know what I mean? It's important yeah. that you guys keep on doing what you're doing and slowly and organically build it because, you know, it's nice. It's nice when, when all the fans are on the same page and I think it's stuff like this is important and, you know, truly humbling to be the first guest on here and hopefully, um, you know, opens the board for some other guys to come on and, and, and carry on in the same vein. But yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the words, man. Like, and again, a pleasure was all ours. So thank you. Uh, thanks for joining. Enjoy the rest of your evening, mate. And look, everyone less listening, really appreciate you taking the time out. Sorry the rest of the guys couldn't be there, but I'm I'm sure you'll agree. Um, Kish more than made up for it. Uh, so listen, we're going to be recording again after the Brighton game. Obviously, we didn't really do much of a preview for that, but I think it goes without saying how bloody important that game is for us now. It's arguably our easiest on-paper fixture from now until the end of the season, so there is really no excuse. If we don't win that, then we we are proper fucked, I guess. So, um, you know, it's... Uh, no no real more more analysis on a preview needed i think uh so yeah cool all right guys um so anyway everyone thank you for listening thank you for joining us and have a great week cheers kish thanks raj see you later bye bye